We're, uh, we're just looking at a passage, sort of a one-off this morning. We've been studying the life of Elijah, the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. We wrapped that up last Sunday. So we're going to look at a psalm this morning, and it's in your bulletin, Psalm 36. It's one of David's psalms. He didn't write all the psalms. He wrote a lot of the psalms, and this is one by, by David. Now, Old Testament scholars will say that the different psalms have different genres. In other words, there's different, there's different kinds of psalms. Some psalms are to give you words when you're celebrating. They are um, coronation hymns or celebration hymns. Some are for giving thanks, which is a form of celebration. Some are for being sad. And it's an interesting thing about biblical worship and the Psalms that, that there are Psalms not to like take a break from worship and I'm going to be sad and then when, I, when I'm through being sad, I'll go back to worship, but to worship God with your sadness, in your sadness. That's called a lament. And there are wisdom Psalms. And I really want you to know this before I read this, the, the, the Psalm. In wisdom literature, that's some of the Psalms, that's Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. There's something that you see over and over, and it's where the writer is sort of looking at the world with a Google Earth view. And, uh, and it's like he's up over the Continental Divide. And you know how the Continental Divide works. If, if water falls on this side of the Continental Divide, it, it empties into that side of, of the, the country or into the Atlantic. If it falls on this side of the divide, it, it goes into rivers and then eventually into the Gulf of Mexico. Wisdom literature gets up over a divide and says, okay, look, we're all human beings, we're all neighbors, but there is a great divide in humanity. And it'll use terms like there are the wise and the foolish, or the righteous and the unrighteous, or the wicked. And I, really, I want you to hear this the way it's, it's, it's uh, intended, because that's not to say, all right, you've got these righteous people over here, and man, boy, they always do the right thing. All you have to do is read a little bit of the Bible to see God's people are not depicted as always doing the right thing, and we're usually depicted as doing the wrong thing. So the righteous are capable of great sin. But they belong to the God who is righteous, who gives them righteousness. And then there are the wicked. And when you, when you hear the term the wicked, you might, you might think of something really sinister. Yeah, people capable of very sinister things, but people who can do very endearing things and very ennobling things and actually moral things. But there is a divide in humanity, those who belong to God and those who do not, those who turn to Him and those who do not. And uh, Psalm 36 is interesting because different Old Testament scholars identify it by different genres. And I saw one Old Testament scholar that said it seems to be a combination of two kinds. On the one hand, it's a lament. It's what's called a lament of the individual. It's David saying, there's things about my life and about this world and about people in my life and in my world that I don't like. They're bad. And he's using wisdom language. You're going to hear him talk about wise and those who don't do what is wise and the foolish, the wicked and the upright of heart. He's looking at that continental divide that, Lord, one day this divide will be manifested and we'll all know which side we're on. 
So keep those in mind as we read this. This is by David. And um, David is not a cartoon character. He's not like out of a Sunday school cutout book. Real man, real problems, real leader, uh, lived through real dangers, experienced real hardships, had real successes, had some amazing friends, had uh, massive treachery in his life, made huge splashy mistakes. So he's talking about his very real life. And I want you to notice that instead of starting the psalm about... Now, here's how great God is. Listen to how he starts this psalm. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You for the Old and the New Testaments. For all of it. And Father, this morning in a particular way, we thank You for Psalms. Thank You for giving us the words when we don't know what words to say. We don't know how to say that we're happy. We don't know how to say that we're sad. We don't know how to say that we don't understand the world around us. Or we don't know how to say thank You. So please open your word to us. Please give us understanding. Please draw us to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Years ago, when I was a fairly new Christian, somebody lent me a a tape, a cassette tape. Um, This is an ancient technology for for audio. They lent me a tape of a, of a speaker named Steve Brown. Some of you may have heard his name, and he's a pastor and writer uh, in our denomination. And, just, and he used to be a smoker, so he has this amazing, just radio deep voice, which I'm envious of. And uh, Steve Brown was talking about something that in, in, his, uh, in his life as a pastor that sometimes people would say to him, and it really irritated him. And it would be when you had a guy that's just sort of the, you know, like white-collar, successful business guy, 50-ish maybe, and 
and he would say to, uh, to Steve Brown, you know, something along the lines of, you know, hey, it's great uh, what you're saying, but I mean, like Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, I'm out there in the real world, and some of this just does not compute. And Steve Brown, you know, he, he, he used that example, and he said, look, I, I have cleaned up after more suicides and I have been at bedsides when death was both approaching and arrived and seen the faces. And, uh, and I have waded into more stomach-churning marriage conflict and heard and seen the just awful things that bubble up when you get into that kind of, that kind of counseling. And he said, you know, I've had about all the real world I care for. And as a young Christian, that, that really landed with me that here is a pastor saying, understand that when I'm out there in the muckety-muck, I'm not poring over my Bible in my neat, controlled pastor study, but when I'm out there in the muckety-muck, all of this is one thing. All of this is of a piece. The praying and the church and the pastoral visits and the suicide cleanup and going to get groceries, all of it is of a piece called real life. And that really reminds me of Psalm 36. You, know, you think about like when you're watching a commercial and, uh, you, you know, like if it's a commercial for wealth advising or some kind of brokerage, you know, it'll show like a guy and he's, you know, he's maybe about 10 years older than me and a little bit more gray in the temple and he's sitting on a desk and there's some kind of picturesque office or just like some kind of idyllic retirement setting. He's kind of doing this a lot. And it, like, it's just a background that draws you in to go, yes, peace, control, I like this. Or, and this is, this is maybe the better example, or commercials for drugs, which there could be PhD dissertations written about commercials about drugs because they have gotten this thing down to a science where they just show these idyllic settings where there's children in kind of perfect tree houses and like grandparents walking with their grandchildren in slow motion and sunsets that you're not even hearing the horrible side effects that they're listing. (laughs) You kind of look up and go, did he just say chance of death? You know, like they just said chance of death. You know, here, like, this is going to be so beautiful. We're going to just leave this indelible impression of beauty on you, and that's how you feel about this. Psalm 36 is not like that kind of commercial. It really, I mean, it's more like, it's more like a Marine looking into a camera in just an extremely war-torn area. And here's a door that's been kicked open and here's a weapons cache in it, and, and all the dust and the sweat, and he's looking in the camera saying, how precious to me is your steadfast love, O oh God. Real world. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a co-ed on a college campus sitting like in the idyllic manicured part of the campus. It, it's, it's like a co-ed looking into the camera, and right over her shoulder is the professor who is just maxed out on cynicism, and he's saying, I hope you either didn't grow up in the Bible Belt, or if you did grow up in the Bible Belt, that you don't believe, you don't believe any of that, because I'm going to pry it out of you. And with him saying that over her shoulder, she's looking in the camera saying, how precious to me is your steadfast love, O God. It's in the real world. So let's look at this. Uh, a psalm by David the Realist. David the king. And here's how I want to unpack this. First, who surrounds me? And then who loves me? And then what I pray. 
Because most of the psalm is not asking for anything, but there is an ask at the end. So who surrounds me? Who loves me? And then what I pray. First off, who surrounds me? And it was interesting to see commentators really drill down into this because the, the way the psalm starts is it makes sin out to be like an oracle. It personifies sin. You know, a transgression is when you cross a boundary that's not to be crossed. You transgress the boundary. And God is the ultimate establisher of the boundaries. And so the ultimate transgression is to go across the boundaries that He has set. And, and David makes this depiction of the act of doing that as if, it's, as if it's a person or an oracle or sort of like a God that's talking to you. And this is really interesting because everything from, from articles to interviews to podcasts will talk about there's some narrative about you that you're listening to or someone or something in your life or from your past or it's formative. It, it, it sets the narrative of who you think you are. And David nailed this centuries beforehand saying, transgression can be like an oracle speaking into a person's life saying, now here's who you really are. All right, look at verses 1 and 2. Because first David gives you the internal life. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Now, this could have all kinds of manifestations. I mean, picture if you've ever known somebody who really is truly a narcissist. Really a narcissist. Because everyone in his or her life knows it and feels it. But what he or she walks around with or wakes up to is, look, uh, if, if these losers can't get it, that, that's their problem. You know what you're doing. Like transgression is counseling. Remember who you are. You're the smart one. But then there's an external life. And, and this really sounds like what Jesus said. You know, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. This person threatens. This person lies. You know, it's interesting. We, we say that we aren't surprised by anything anymore, and then we get surprised. Or we say that we believe, like, that we know how the world works, and then when the world does it, we're shocked. And one example of that is when, because this happens all the time, is someone gives you their word. They could sign a contract, they can give you a verbal agreement, handshake, whatever, and then they lie to you. Some of you have been on the receiving end of that. I'd say most of you have been on the receiving end of that. And it might actually be as close and personal as someone may have made a marriage covenant to you and made promises. And then lied. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, I don't want to spend most of the time on this. This is, the, this is the bad news at the beginning. But let me just say this in passing, and I like to acknowledge this every so often, that it's very refreshing that the Bible is honest about real life. That, that biblical faith, 
does not say, now, dig deep and be positive and keep a great attitude and go out there and pretend like it's not as bad as it really is. That doesn't sound anything like Psalms, and it sure doesn't sound like Psalm 36. And, uh, you know, I told the 830 service, I want to be careful here. When, when I stand up to, to teach, preach, I don't want to engage in. Now, what I think this might mean, I really, like, I don't want to be in that posture, but I'm going to give you a might, okay? It might be the case, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's the case, that in those first few verses, David is remembering his experiences with King Saul. Because it sounds like this person got, had a good start. You know, in verse 3, he says, he has ceased to act wisely and do good, which means at one point, he was acting wisely and he was doing good, which Saul was. Had a good beginning. And then his heart acted out. But whether, it, whether he's thinking about King Saul or not, the Bible never calls you to pretend. It says, look at others and look at yourself with realism because that's who's around you. So then what does David go to next? And this is important. David doesn't say, now, who surrounds me and what are they like? And now we're going to talk about what am I like? Who surrounds me? And then now let's talk about me. He talks about who surrounds me. And now we're going to talk about who loves me. Listen to this term that keeps showing up, and this is all through the Psalms, and it's all through this Psalm. Verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Verse 10, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Now that term, steadfast love, that's an English translation of a short Hebrew word. Here's, uh, here's how one Old Testament scholar defined it. He said, it's not merely love, but loyal love. It's not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. It's not merely affection, but it's affection that has committed itself. It's, it, it, it is. It's the language of God's marriage covenant love for His people where in effect he's saying, you may have forgotten that we're married. I have not forgotten that we are married. You may have forgotten that you belong to me. I have not forgotten. You may leave me. I'm not going to leave you. You may harden your heart against me. I will not harden my heart against you. And when I come after you and draw you back, it might hurt. But I'm not doing it because I hate you. And I'm not doing it to bully you. I'm going to do it because I love you. And I'm committed to you. And David says that thing, steadfast love. One place he says, it's better than life. Lord, your steadfast love is better than life. And David, if I may be blunt, he had sex with a whole bunch of people. A bunch of wives, a bunch of concubines. That didn't go well, by the way. A bunch of success, a bunch of power, a bunch of prowess on the battlefield. 
He says, your love is better than all of that. Your steadfast love is better than life. So how does he talk about this loving God? And first off, in verses 5 and 6, he talks about God's perfections, or you could say God's attributes. But before I read these again, let me, let me, um, let me use this example. There's a writer named Anne Lamott, uh, and uh, she wrote a very influential book about writing called Bird by Bird. And her son is older now, but when her son was little, I think it's in Bird by Bird, she quotes something that he said to her when he was a little boy. He said, I love you like 20 Tyrannosauruses on 20 mountaintops. Let me say it one more time. I love you like 20 Tyrannosauruses on 20 mountaintops. Now, that doesn't tell you anything like in a linear way. But you get what he's saying. It's a, it's a boy's heart. It's such a boy's heart saying, I love you big and enormous and strong. That feels like verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. And I just keep being struck by that such interesting language. God, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save. You care about people and you care about the mule that has to be flogged to plow one row. You're, you're great. So these perfections of why God is not like us, why God is God. But it doesn't just stay there. Look at what he does next. He says, all right, this is this great loving God. Now, look at how he relates to people. Look in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind. And that, he just uses the term for just humans. Not just Israel. Humanity. Adam. Take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And here's where I want to give some focus. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. And I want to stop and look at that phrase for a minute. Verse 8. That, that Lord, how do you deal with people? You give them drink from the river of your delights. Now, I... I just so happened to pick up an old book this week and was kind of just perusing through it. And I came on a... I didn't even know I would find this. I found a definition of delight. And this is an old definition by a Puritan named Stephen Charnock. And here's what he says. Delight properly is an affection of the mind that springs from the possession of the good which has been ardently desired. Let me read it one more time. This is a mild uh, wordy sentence by Puritans. This is the, they're going light on you here. De- delight properly is an affection of the mind that springs from the possession of the good which has been ardently desired. In other words, when there has been this thing that you really, really want, really, really crave. Maybe it's so personal you would never verbalize it to anybody, but you know how badly you want it. 
and you get it. And when you realize you get it, there's sort of this explosion in the soul, in the heart. And, and Charnock says, now that is delight. That I have the thing I so fervently desired. Now think about this. Uh, David says, let me put it this way. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Lord, you give them drink from the river of delights. And this actually checks out in the Hebrew. He says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. In other words, you're, you're putting this, this ladle, you know, this, this cup into this river of what you delight in. And that raises a question, doesn't it? What does God delight in? Because for God to delight in something, God would have to desire something. What does God desire? God doesn't have any needs. God doesn't have any shortcomings. God doesn't have a bucket list. God doesn't have a goal He'd like to meet. But somehow, He has a river of His desires. And David is saying, you go to the river of, of, of delights. You go to the river of your delights, and you give people a drink from the river of your delights. What does God desire that would lead to His river of delights? Now, this gets into something that has been meditated on by everyone from church fathers in the second century to Trappist monks to Catholic mystics, to English Puritans, and people today. What does God delight in? Um, Here's a little clue. The night that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, before He was arrested, He was praying. And the record of this prayer is in uh, the Gospel of John. And one of the things that He prays is, Lord... I want to return to the glory that I had with you from the beginning. You loved me from before the foundations of the world. And when he says that, there's not a lot of clues like this in the Bible. But it's like he just kind of peeled the veil back to let you see back before there was a universe. You ever wondered about what was before the universe? And where your mind goes is just you picture blank space. But blank space is something. But there was nothing but God. And this is where we're at a great advantage, even over David, to have the New Testament. Because something that we see more clearly than he saw, but we don't fully understand it, is that there's one God. And he exists as three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God is not one-third Father and one-third Son and one-third Spirit. The Father is fully God. And the Son is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. These three persons are equal in power and glory. All three persons are to be worshipped and adored as God. What did God do when there was no molecule? The persons loved one another. And you even see little, little echoes of this 
in the New Testament, when Jesus began his public ministry and he was baptized, what did God the Father say from heaven? Did he say, this is the central figure of the Bible. Please pay attention. He said audibly, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus would say things like, my food and drink is to do the will of him who sent me. I am not here just being a goody two-shoes, and I'm not just jumping through hoops, and I'm not obeying the law of Moses to show that it can be done. I do what I do because I love my Father. God experiences delight when he relates to himself and delights in himself. Now, here's what I want to throw out to you. We were made, and I mean like the blueprint of our existence while we live, is to do that. That we were made, body and soul, to reach for Him and not just say, help me through my day, although it's fine to pray, help me through my day. And not just say, help me pay my bills, although it's good to say, help me pay my bills. But ultimately, we were made to reach for Him and say, I love you, and I need you, and I enjoy you. I love you because you first loved me. There is no one like you. You are God, and I am not. Let me get really mystic. Christians, for almost two millennia, have reached back into the Old Testament. And right in the middle of the Old Testament, really right in the middle of your Bible, guess what there is? There's a book of erotic poetry. Eek! Song of Solomon. And Christians have reached back for that where there is this extremely intimate language about the the lover and the beloved. And if you've ever had the experience of reading Song of Solomon and it's cloaked in all these metaphors and you go, hey, wait, did that just mean what I think it meant? Yes, it did. Christians have reached back for that and taken that language and understood that as ultimately the only love affair that could embody that would be the love between God and His bride. So that Christians in the first century and Christians in the 21st century will actually say things like, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Like, don't just help me with my plans. Or or don't just help my kids. But I want you to kiss me and love me because I belong to you. That's what we're made for. So what does God pray? No, excuse me, what does David pray? Verse 10, he uses this term again. Um, He asks, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. I got to do something fun this Tuesday. Three of the pastors studied this passage together and, and this was really great. We were reflecting on 
drinking from the river of God's delights. And when we got to verse 10, the comment was made, David seems to be saying, and Lord, keep the tab open because I need to keep drinking that. So as people lie to me and people make plots and I experience betrayal and the world is sad, let me drink from the river of your delights and keep that steadfast love coming. Verse 11, what does he ask? He asks for protection. It's a dangerous world. It's not an ideal world, and it's not a neutral world. It's a dangerous world. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. It is right and good to pray, Lord, please protect me. But then the psalm ends, and it's not an ask. The end of the psalm is an assertion. Verse 12, There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. It's a vision of that continental divide. How does David know this? We don't know. But by the Lord's influence, he, he doesn't ask. He states in his prayer, Lord, one day you deal with all of it. All the murders all the corruption, all the assaults, all the abuse, all the lies, all the treachery, you deal with it. And they lie fallen. Now, a couple of things and I'm done. First is this. Can you recognize your own heart in the descriptions of sin in the psalm? Because it's very important to understand that if any of us can be counted as the righteous or the wise, it's because we have been acted upon. David had to be acted upon. And think about it this way. I was talking about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. He is arrested. And then over the hours of that night and the next morning, he receives injustice and is abused and is tortured, and then is finally crucified. Part of his crucifixion was drinking the sour drink, drinking the sour wine. But that was just a picture of the real drinking he was doing. He drank bitterness so that we can drink delight. Jesus drinks bitterness because he wants his people to drink God's delights. If he doesn't drink bitterness for you, you have to drink bitterness. I'd have to drink bitterness. But when he drinks it for you, he opens up to you the cup of delights. You know, the Hebrew word for delights here is Eden. Like the garden, like the way things are supposed to be. We drink when we have Christ, and it's only through Christ that we can drink. The second thing is this, and I'll end with this, that, you know, as I'm talking about this and you're thinking about, man, praying and like reaching for God and saying, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. I, I like the concept, but I'm just not there. It's kind of all I can do to get to work and put out the recycling and maybe get to church once in a while. And I hear you, but here's what I want to leave you with. Don't let transgression be an oracle on your insides. 
That's foolishness. Don't let transgression say to you, listen, maybe some people can live like this, but you are so maxed out. You're so busy. There's so much on you. How can you really be close to God? Uh, Don't listen to that. You are made to be close to God. Um, I've mentioned to you the German shepherd that I grew up with, Machen. And as I like to point out, she went to heaven uh, on merit, not by grace. And I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. Not a lot of snows. There's not a ton of them here, but there's less in Jackson, Mississippi. First time I ever saw snowflakes fall was second grade, but I think it was fifth grade the first time I saw a snow of several inches. First time we had a snow of several inches, it was the first year or two that we had owned Machen. And I I just wish I could adequately convey this to you, but when this snow fell and we let her out the door, this German shepherd in Mississippi, when she went out, her body posture, her looks, her kind of her attitude, the the way she moved in the snow, the way her nose moved through the snow, this thing came out that just looked like, okay, this is what I'm talking about. Like, I was made for this. I was not made for 99 and humid. I was made for this. It just leapt out of her. And I want to be a voice in your life saying, not on my authority, but on the authority of God's Word, when you reach for your Creator and say, love me, know me, protect me, reassure me, help me fear you, Let me know you. You are doing what you were made to do, period. Amen. Let's pray. Father, take your word, drive it deep down in our hearts. We would pray with the psalmist, continue your steadfast love to us because of the work of Jesus Give us that drink from the river of your delights. We need it in our fallen world. We pray in his name. Amen.